Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. We have another one of our long-awaited UFO roundtables. That's patent pending, by the way, UFO roundtable. I want yeah. everyone to be aware of that. And we have none other than Jeremy Vaney, Jeff Ritzman, after a bit of an absence, and the one, the only, Alan Greenfield, because they had the choice of making two. No, I don't want to get into that. You know, let's talk about something that isn't too happy or pleasant, because I think most of us knew who this guy was. And back in the 50s and 60s, there was a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland for people who were interested in horror movies and probably helped people become interested in horror movies. And the editor was a fellow named Forrest J. Ackerman. And some of us actually had the pleasure of meeting Ackerman years and years ago. And he died very recently, just a few days ago. Lived to the ripe old age in his 90s and at one time had one of the greatest collections of science fiction and horror memorabilia on the planet and you could go visit it on saturdays he would uh, if you called him up he would have these little impromptu uh, tours he would give of the acker mansion i guess and that that moved between a couple of different locations and and finally sadly he had to sell a big l- chunk of that collection in order to pay his medical bills and, right. and i was astounded that someone like spielberg or lucas didn't step forward and just basically buy the collection and house it. You know, I, that Steven Spielberg didn't do that just amazes me. It would have taken a tiny little sliver of dough in his world to make that happen. I think that's very sad because what ended up happening was, of course, the collection got broken up and, and, and sold off piecemeal. I mean, this guy had, I know Jeff and I would have gone there and we'd have lost our minds. Uh, and I, I actually, uh, that's where I got uh, the communion head face that is in the uh, Culture Contact Art Expo I got from Mr. Ackerman years ago for the grand total price of $20. Oh, so yeah. um, he's a very nice man. But I ended up getting two. I got the green bug head from the communion film and the alien from the very final scene from him. And uh, yeah, very nice man. Very nice. You know, he kind of got me in the radio business, and I'll tell you how. We had all written letters to Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine when we were teens, a number of us, saying why we wanted Forrest J. Ackerman to come to our house. (laughs) I'm serious. Cool, very cool. And I won. And I set everything up like a radio talk show. And then I said, you know what? I really want to do this. Oh, man. And now 400 years later, here I am. And there he's gone. And uh, it's, it's very sad. It's very sad. He's a, he was a hero. He was a guy who uh, started many authors. I guess um, Ray Bradbury claims that, that Ackerman really gave him his start. He was, uh, I guess, uh, well, the funny little thing, he was um, an agent for a while for Isaac Asimov. He was also Ed Wood's literary agent, which I think is hysterical. It's just really good. This guy had a great life, let's face it. He had a really fascinating life, surrounded by the things he loved. I mean, when you think about the idea that, you know, what is happiness? Well, do what you want to do in your life and be good at it. Forey was the best. He was the best sci-fi enthusiast. In fact, he, he invented the term sci-fi. So, uh, you know, that, that this guy could live and make a living and do well, 
it warms the my heart. And what kills me is that for for a number of years, my buddy Chuck would say to me, "Let's drive." This when I was living in San Francisco. He'd say, "Let's drive down to L.A. and go see Forrest Ackerman." And it's one of those things I deeply regret never taking Chuck up on it. I never said, "Oh, you know, let's we should go do this." Uh, that we had a bunch of mutual friends. Um, I know people who were very close to him. And I never went down there to see him, and now I just want to cry. I mean, you know, because that, that opportunity is now gone, and he's gone. So, Well, I don't know. I think that his work, uh, is he had just celebrated 50 years in publishing Famous Monsters of the Film. Um, I wish I had held on to the very first issue, which I got when it came out. And, uh oh. I think that alone, along with a number of other things, I, I ran a memorial on my uh, live journal, and uh, there were a number of comments. And apparently he was one of the uh, founders of the Esperanto movement, and uh, he, he, the number of accomplishments in his life was tremendous. But one must be okay with the schlocky approach to science fiction or sci-fi as he called it much to the chagrin of the the hardcore fans who insisted on the term sf they lost out long ago but um uh sort of the edward of literature in fact i was introduced to the work of edward uh through famous monsters so um, it, it had a profound effect on my life because I'm perfectly willing to have, you know, the a kind of a tabloid uh, approach to um, horror, and uh, that's a foreign word for Southerners, and uh, the macabre, that I can say. <laughs> At the same time, have a very serious interest in uh, dark aesthetics as a, in a more, uh, I guess, high literary fashion. So um, uh, I can, I can. Uh, uh, look at it both ways, and Barry Ackerman was unquestionably the king of the uh, pop uh, view, the giant spider view, the uh, vampire interview where she blithely, wait, may she rest in peace, she died just a few months ago as well, that um, can say blithely uh, that she was so glad that she got to work with Bela Lugosi. Well, of course, she never did work with Bela Lugosi. <laughs> He was dubbed in, and uh, she uh, he was uh, dead and gone by the time she came in. To- oh, it was funny, too. This was the movie they made of Lugosi where he died partway through the filming, and then Ed Wood's chiropractor played the role, you know, wearing the hood and covering his head and walking like Lugosi. Yeah, well, that, that guy actually uh, made uh, some additional films for Edward, but he was a chiropractor. However, the part with Lugosi, I think, was just um, uh, Wood's technique was to take little bits and pieces of things and build a script around it. And uh, I don't think there was a script when the uh, the scenes that are actually Lugosi, that, uh, that are original Legacy materials. There's one scene that I think he uh, <clears throat> borrowed from somewhere where there's the spreading of the cape and all of that. But that's Legosi, but it's probably from uh, one of his vampire appearances or from Dracula or whatever. But it's it's you know it's a three second take, and uh, um, the rest of it is around Legosi's rather shabby home at that time, and um, that it's. 
10 minutes worth of film, and I think that it was just speculative. They had already done a movie together, a, a really interesting uh, little movie, the name of which is less important than, than the fact that, uh, that Lugosi did an outstanding, uh, more or less farewell performance. It's just the, the man who pulls the strings. Pull the strings! Pull the strings! Yes, I oh. actually I have um, all of those scenes from I believe that's from Glenn or Glenda. But uh, yeah, uh, he made several. So I don't think Lugosi ever heard of Plan Nine from Outer Space or Grave Robbers from Outer Space, as it was first called. Um, it, that was just sort of patched in, and uh, so she was she was talking, and uh, I as a you know. Nine, ten year old, uh, I, I believed it, and that's okay because it was part of the, the mythos within the mythos, and I am, I, they will both be missed. It's it. very interesting that a lot of us who got interested in UFOs around that time were also interested in science fiction and horror films, yet any effort made to merge the two in terms of getting people interested in both to work together never really succeeded. Yeah, well, that's that's actually one of my most most important points. That I mean, I, I basically developed the set of interests that have moved my life all around the same time, and there was no special. the The only thing that at the time I would have seen that that connected them was my interest in them. Uh, you know, there are six or seven subjects that. Uh, that I got deeply involved in, some I'm less involved in now, some I'm more involved in, some I've been uninvolved in and then back involved in. But they all came right around the time I was 12, 13 years old or or a little earlier. And uh, perhaps what has occurred for me is the realization over a long period of time how many of these things actually do have connections beyond the fact that, that I'm interested in them. Um, uh, science fiction clearly has a uh, an historical relationship uh, debt, if you will, to ufology and vice versa. And uh, there are in in all of these uh, situations, you'll find that there are um, interconnections and you'll also find generally speaking, people in one area are hostile to others um, so, or, or uninterested sometimes militantly uninterested in others. There are a handful of us that, you know, glided from one to another and, and don't see any conflict or don't see it as being, you know, a Jekyll and Hyde thing where we are interested in this, but we don't, we're not interested in that. Uh, in a way, I think the, um, the 1950s approach, which continued in Famous Monsters for a long time afterwards, uh, is uh, the grandfather of the of uh, the the goth movement and the uh, the uh, the real vampire movement, quote unquote, that uh, is uh, so prevalent now. Uh, you know, it's interesting also about how far some of this attempt to merge science fiction and so-called UFO flying saucer studies goes back in the forties. Now we haven't mentioned this a lot on the show, but we have occasionally Ray Palmer edited. Amazing stories, and he ran the Richard Shaver short stories, novelettes, whatever, and then presented Shaver as not just a science fiction writer, but somebody who had genuine experiences with 
whatever they were, these creatures from inside the Earth, crypto-terrestrials, whatever you want to call them. Oh, Ray Palmer is a definite, uh, I would say, the most important individual link um, between the, uh, the at least the commercial world of uh, science fiction, uh, where he actually was a respectable person uh, pre-shaver and went on to be a um, mover and shaker in the occult, uh, paranormal-slash-UFO um, universe uh, through fate and then through uh, flying saucers and then through the hidden world's reprise of the uh, of the uh, Shaver mystery and um, so-called. And um, I don't even know that Shaver could be considered a writer, less a science fiction writer. What he was was a person who produced a series of ideas which uh, which Palmer spotted as uh, extremely vivid and extremely useful if polished up into into science fiction format. But Shaver was in earnest uh, from day one, whether he was insane, whether he was a a brilliant person on that that border between insanity and clarity, which uh, includes prophets and wizards and all kinds of people, or whether whether he was giving the straight dope that's just too much for us to to handle. Um, that's that's another matter. But he was he was an idea man, and Palmer had the uh, good fortune, I think, uh, to. Uh, Polish that up, and everything you see by Shaver. For those of us who knew Shaver, clearly was polished by Palmer or by someone else, and it came and it went. I mean, the interesting thing is, a lot of the things we'll talk about have come to have huge recognition. I can remember when uh, you you could go to a science fiction convention, and there would be about fifty people there, all of them geeky people. And uh, the uh, professional writers would be there too because the audience was not that large, uh, even even in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And in those days, you could you could meet the, uh, the big wheels, the the great names, because they were most of them, those that weren't reclusive, and even a few of them who were, hung out with uh, the fans. There was no clear border between them. And uh, it wasn't like they were A-list personages who wrote for TV and movies and made multi-millions of dollars. Before we give up everything here, no, they, they just basically got by, as they said. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right? You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. This offer only good for USA listeners. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com. 
where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380. 800-715-4380. Or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com. 1-800-715-4380. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with opportunities to stretch out and talk. We're talking to Alan Greenfield, Jeff Ritzman, Jeremy Vaney. We're having a UFO Paranormal Roundtable, and we're also remembering the past... And this was maybe triggered or inspired by our remembrances of the late Forrest J. Ackerman, who was well-known in science fiction horror film circles, and inevitably it led to other people such as Richard Shaver and Ray Palmer. Of course, Ray Palmer once said about UFOs or flying saucers, they are here to make us think. So, Alan, what do you think they were here or are here to make us think about? Mm. I don't necessarily accept the premise. I think they are here, and we should think about them. But <laughs> I, I don't think they're here to make us think. I think we are incidental to the phenomena. As I've pointed out previously, and I try not to keep on the, the, the same thing too many times, but you can't always assume that uh, people have heard previous broadcasts. Actually, it's a prerequisite to listening to the show. Anytime you want to listen to the PowerCast, you have to listen to 100 episodes first before you listen to the Absolutely. I think that that is true of your show. And every, in fact, I think you should spend all of your time, all of your time. Forget your job. You're not going to have one. What work. job? That's exactly <laughs> my point. As the, as the system dies slowly before our eyes, we can, as long as the electricity is on and the computer works, we can always listen to podcasts endlessly. And, of course, the Paracast being the uh, leading podcast that I'm on at the moment, I will, <laughs> I will encourage people to listen to previous episodes. But what I wanted to point out was this, that there is a perception that UFOs, paranormal phenomena of various sorts, phenomena associated with magical invocation and evocation, are all, in a sense, drawn out of parallel worlds, an idea that was simply an idea. It wasn't properly a theory when first proposed because there was no theoretical underpinning, as people like, uh, what's his name, Bob Schaefer, um, endlessly pointed out they were they were speculations not theories well there are a good many ideas in in contemporary um subatomic th um 
theory that uh, suggests that there may be an endless number of parallel worlds. And my argument goes that there's a lot of evidence of it because we see little glitches in reality if you look for them. It's sort of like the Matrix, you know, where, in fact, it's a lot like the Matrix. There are enough glitches in our reality to indicate that perhaps what we are on a day-to-day basis is a product of evolution to survive in a in a world where... For the most part, we either run or kill or eat or are eaten, and that give have developed five useful senses for dealing with that kind of reality over a period of millions of years. What we have with the um, phenomena, plural, are things that essentially are outside of those five senses, but of course just as we have to resolve stars as something, even though we can't properly see stars with our eyes, but they uh, register something on our eyes, and they register as little points of light. I think the phenomena, when it touches our reality sufficiently, is going to manifest as something. And when it does our senses and those devices we've developed out of and for use by our senses, such as cameras, are going to register um, only only a, a marginal token of what these things are, what their, what their reality is, because they really, we're not equipped either in terms of our, the way our brains are hardwired and the way our senses are hardwired to acquire this particular kind of information. So it's going to tend to be variable. Uh, it's going to tend to be culturally influenced. And we're never getting the, the, the entire picture. We're getting only only the, the kind of borders. And my favorite comparison is the uh, over 100-year-old book, uh, Flatland, by a guy named Edwin Abbott, I believe, which is a two-dimensional creature trying to figure out three-dimensional objects, which, of course, can only be understood abstractly and never directly, because directly it is a lot like the, uh, the fable of the five blind men touching the elephant and inferring what an elephant is like uh, from the part that they're touching. We still, as human beings, have this drive to want to understand to want to perceive. We also, yes, we do have these senses, but we also have uh, some technology and instrumentation that allows us to extend those senses, and we're always uh, sort of in a quest to try to augment those abilities. So, Well, yeah, we have, we have devices that extend those senses. What I'm saying is whatever the essence of these things are, because of the way they manifest, I infer that they require a different sensibility altogether. Now, we can talk about a little bit about uh, altered states of consciousness, and perhaps we have uh, access to senses that are not acknowledged, at least uh, on a momentary basis. That may be, in fact, when we perceive these things. However, uh, we don't build our instrumentality to enhance senses that we don't have. Uh, we, we build it to enhance senses that we do or translate it into those senses. Otherwise, I think interfaces are what we're talking about. And what we do have is, this is important. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but this is crucial. 
The one thing that we do have going for us that it seems to be trans-sensual, to coin it a term, would be our consciousness, which is a very difficult thing to define, just as energy is a very difficult thing to define, and the nature of the universe is a very difficult thing to, to define. Our quest has to be in terms of being analytical at, at, at some level by using our consciousness to focus on that which we can not feel, see, hear, etc. And that we only get uh, essentially shadows on the wall and inferring as much as we can from, from that. I think that's why it seems like, as Jean Duplantier said, a, wall, a long walk down an endless tube. I think the focus shouldn't be so much on end goal, but on next step, and then next step, and then next step. And maybe we will be able to get some sort of a, a picture, but... Uh, uh, well, yeah, the, the statement end goal assumes that we have some idea of where this evolutionary track ends up, and those of us, I think, who are realistic, pragmatic about this would be the first to say that we have no idea where we are in the evolution of a species, uh, of our species, and we really don't have any idea where we end up. At the same time, uh, and I was talking with somebody today at length about the case of Jose de Freitas Arrigo, the Brazilian healer. At the same time, we have to acknowledge that sometimes these realities are, are more than just shadows on the wall. And in the case of that particular person and that paranormal reality, we have such an intense intrusion on our reality of something that we have absolutely no understanding of, really no understanding of, and, and, and Arigo, the vessel himself, didn't really understand what was going on, certainly had no control over it, but the results of that interaction were certainly far more palpable and real in terms of their effect on this reality than mere shadows on a wall. You can learn a lot from shadows on the wall, too. I mean, you know, then you can, you can outline them and perhaps do wall paintings, and the next thing you know, you're no longer a Neanderthal, you're a Cro-Magnon. I mean, or vice versa, whichever came later. There's some argument on that. Uh, no, I'm not, I, I won't argue that at all. Arago is a, is a good example because he was humble enough that there were clearly places in his work where he did not know. He tended to divide people who came to him into three groups. One, I think this is probably all that he knew, one were people that he would say, go home and pray, because I guess he recognized there was nothing that he could do for them and that essentially going home and praying was as good a thing to do and as therapeutic a thing to do and as righteous a thing to do as could happen. Another group of people, he helped in a somewhat Edgar Cayce-ish way with herbs and advice and a pep talk and prayer. And then the third group, he did his famous surgery with a rusty knife. And what he was doing there, I'm, you know, it's very hard to distinguish uh, how much was ledger domain and how much was real. That worked. You know, it doesn't matter. It's like the placebo effect is too underrated because it, it actually implies uh, mind over matter because there should be no placebo effect in theory. There should be... Oh, but, right, Alan, but what was going on with Arigo in no way looked like a placebo effect at all. There's a, I, I understand that. I understand right. that, especially also, with the second group. What I'm saying is well, even well, if on. you are a total skeptic about the physical 
surgery because so many other psychic surgeons in other parts of the world have done pretty impressive stuff that turns out to be fraudulent. I think uh, Arago was actually doing what he appeared to be doing because I do, because the, the evidence is strong enough for me to be in the pro-Arago category. But I'm saying even if you take that uh, that stance that it, that it was not, nevertheless, his, his statistical uh, positive results exceeded chance by a great deal. Oh, and that means that something was going on that was very powerful. Absolutely. Just one other thing that needs to be uh, added to that is that uh, what you categorize as the second group, people who, who receive herbal remedies, that's not accurate at all. Um, what, what Arigo was doing was writing out prescriptions of current accepted medical drugs older medical drugs that were at that point long out of favor and had really become impractical um, and also uh, in some cases was prescribing experimental drugs that were right on the cutting edge that you know that Arigo would have never known about but uh, I don't think there's any cases where he was prescribing herbal tonics this is not uh, that that character John of God I think maybe we're using the term in a different way. Most older prescription medicines were, in fact, herbal. I mean, cocaine is derived from an herb. Um, there, I don't know why that was the first one to come to mind, but clearly um, traditional medicine has tincture of opium, tincture of this, uh, blah, blah, blah. Most of them are were part of the Materia Medica, which is to say they were from herbal sources. And a lot of medicines today that are that are refined modern Absolutely. medicines are I wasn't implying that he was giving out a snake oil elixir at all. I would I'm I'm a believer in and user of herbal medicine because I think that it has a far longer and better track record in the long run uh, than most uh, refined medicines do. Uh, refined medicines are excellent, some of them, for emergency medicine, and modern medicine is excellent for emergencies. That's that's really where they excel. But in most of the things that people would go to Argo with, uh, I would say uh, traditional, let's call it traditional medicine, holistic medicine, is uh, far more effective. And without his being an herbalist, he knew what to prescribe. And in that way, I would compare him to Casey, because Casey also used things like castor oil was one of the major things that uh, Edgar Casey uh, used, castor oil packs. Uh, well, castor oil was the U.S. is still a U.S. pharmacopoeia recognized medication, but it is an herbal medicine or a botanical medicine. Hey, neighbors, the easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time, because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You're a little with Jesus and David 
I'll tell you what, before we get castor oil, and we get served with that castor oil, and I really don't know that I want to have that for dinner, we're talking to Alan Greenfield, Jeff Ritzman, Jeremy Faney. Jeff, we have not heard anything from you except a brief hi at the beginning of the session, and it's been a while since we've talked to you. Would you like to chime in, please? Hi, Gene. (laughs) Well, that was certainly an enlightening comment, Jeff, and I know that it was great having you here, but in the future, if you want to come back, please write a letter to Jim Mosley. He was was adding to my comments on traditional medicine. Hi, Gene. It's so important to long life and good health. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, Jeff, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, sure. Since we spoke to you last, uh, you've undergone some, some major life changes. Yep. You got a new place. Uh, yes. Even in a, uh, in a weak economy, uh, you did the American thing yep. and purchased a new home. Now, I'm putting you on the spot so you can smack me down. You <laughs> sent me something in a piece of email that I want to follow up with you about. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, are you willing to talk about this on the show? Sure, yeah. So, in this piece of email, because um, we had a long discussion last week, we kind of caught up on some stuff, but um, one of the things, of course, that I was curious about was whether or not there had been any anomalous activity in your new place. And at the time that we spoke, I think you told me that nothing had happened. Exactly. Has, has there been a change, apparently? I think so. Interestingly enough, it's not. none of it's involved me so far. It's all involved. Uh, my wife and my son have come to me twice now. Well, actually, I should I should give a brief rundown of the house itself, which is like a uh, a two story Cape Cod place, but much wider than you would expect it to be. And uh, I actually have a prop slash game room now, which is great for all my junk. And my son was in here playing Xbox, and he comes in just about every day for an hour when he gets home to kind of unwind, and he told me that he's been smelling cigarette smoke in here at least a week, uh, for at least a week or so, which nobody in the house smokes. As far as I know, this house had been empty for almost two years, and we shampooed and washed down everything before we even came in the door. So where that's coming from, I don't know. Um, I do know that the, the prior owner, his wife passed away, which is henceforth the reason that he sold the house uh, he's moved to another state and he had the house on the market for quite a long time and uh, of course when the housing market took the deep plunge that was the time for me to jump on it and um, and so I did I do not know what his wife died of I don't know if she smoked uh, mm-hmm. as far as I know he he did not in the it's a small world category my dad who's been a mechanic for probably going on 45 years uh, or more, actually was in the same circles as the man I bought the house from. And uh, uh, I've talked to a couple of people, and they said that, uh, you know, he's married for 43 years to this woman, and when she passed away, he, he didn't want anything to do with the house anymore. He basically let uh, not the house go into disrepair, but certainly the lawn uh, go into disrepair. She had a pretty extensive garden out front. Uh, it's a sloping front lawn. And uh, apparently from what everyone in the neighborhood has told me, that the, when she was alive, the place was stunningly gorgeous with flowers. They have since turned to uh, small twigs, which I just cut down the other day and I'm getting ready to replant in the spring. So 
we haven't done a great deal of, there hasn't been anything really to do as far as repairs or renovations or anything like that. It was very nice walking in the door, which was great. My wife, however, came to me, I don't know, it's been a few days ago now, and apparently my son and I, well, I was picking him up from, from class, and when I got home, she said that she was vacuuming the floors, the base of the floor, uh, at the stairs, and looked up and saw a dark shadow that seemed to look like a person standing at the top of the stairs. And there was no light on at the top of the stairs, so she couldn't make out exactly what it was, but she said that it moved quickly to the left. I think it was uh, a few days more after that, my parents had come over to drop off some extension cords and whatnot because I was running my Christmas lights up. And uh, as I went up the stairs, again with no lights on at the top, I saw what looked like a, like a white shape. I don't even know what it was because truthfully I wasn't looking at the top of the stairs. I was looking at the steps ahead of me. And as I got towards the top, I saw something at the very top left uh, of, of the top of the stairs move to the left. Uh, it was very, very quick. And I could probably blow it off as my eyes playing tricks on me from going to a, from a light area to a dark area. Mm-hmm. So it could be that, but um, it's pretty unusual for my kid to come because uh, he is the uber skeptic, and he says, "I'm telling you, Dad, there's something in here." <laughs> so uh, I haven't found anything out of the ordinary. I feel very comfortable here. I really don't know what to say about it other than that. I mean, I can't say the one thing that I mentioned to Jeremy the other night on the phone, which was my wife and I seem to be having almost tandem-like dreams at certain points, and it's usually the ones that wake me up, the nightmares. I had a dream this past week about actually the neighborhood I grew up in near my mom and dad's place, and uh, she and I were running from some people. I don't know who they were, but they looked vicious, (laughs) and we were running, and we were trying to enter the house across the street from my mom and dad's, and my wife kept dropping the key, which is one of those panic, got to get away from these people kind of things. And it, it, it startled me enough that it woke me up. And I mentioned that the next night at dinner to my wife, and she kind of like dropped her fork and looked at me. And she goes, you know what? That's the second time now that there's been a dream that's been almost exactly what I dreamed the night before. She said she had a very similar dream, running from three people, which was three people, and uh, and they were trying to get us for some reason or another, and we couldn't seem to get away from them. You know, little things like that. I haven't I haven't had any major manifestations of anything around here, and I don't I don't feel at all like I did in the condominium, which was a feeling of never being completely alone. I guess is the best way to describe it. And I mean, at least for a week or two when we first moved in, Lisa and my son both mentioned to me that. It was kind of weird living in a house where you didn't see things out of the corner of your eye all the time. Hmm. Um, uh, that I think Lisa mentioned, she said, when you're alone in this house, you really feel like you're alone. And within the past couple of weeks, um, there's been little things that have kind of made me look, but I still don't feel at all uneasy or anything like that. I feel I feel really good about the place myself, but... Let me ask you a question about those those dreams. They sound like anxiety dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think there's any connection between the stress of moving? I know that you've been you've been definitely undergoing some significant stress. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I definitely any, think so. So so do you think there's any possibility that that might have been the source? For some sure, of absolutely. Sure, right. absolutely. 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, I don't doubt that for a second her and I both have been under an unimaginable stress over the, you know, the past three or four months. And um, uh, especially with what the housing market did right in the middle of our, our looking for a new home. And not to mention what the what the mortgage, you know, uh, empire did in the middle of that as well. So, interestingly enough, I didn't have a problem with either. <laughs> so, I was pretty lucky. Uh, in that respect, but yeah, I think stress could have a, a great deal of, to do with it. It also it could have a lot to do with coming down off of stress, just you know, uh, mm-hmm. being so relieved to be done with it all. So sure, absolutely. Now, Jeremy, you've also been kind of quiet, and I, and I like to put you on the spot as well because you just had a uh, a very sad thing happen. But then uh, you indicated that some very interesting stories came out of that. Do you mind if I put you on the spot to elaborate about that a little bit? Ed Wood had a literary agent. Is that? Oh, come on, man. What? No, I just I couldn't believe what I heard. Uh, yeah, no, go ahead. Put me on the spot. Well, uh, uh, in, a, in an email to, to Jeff myself, you had indicated that, uh, well, first of all, your your grandfather passed away, and we offer our condolences to that, uh, for that to you. Um, but then you indicated that in your trip um, up to Vermont, I believe it was, that you found some interesting stuff that goes beyond the uh, the passing of a relative. Could you tell us yeah. a little bit about that? <laughs> it? Was- I mean, my God, it was like bad sci-fi. It was um, it was just one of those things where I um, sort of keep this UFO stuff to myself. My immediate family knows about it. As far as I knew, nobody else knew about it. And I didn't know how they'd react, so I never brought it up. Um, but somebody's been checking out the web and uh, found my website, and so seemingly everybody knows now. And Mm-hmm. And it was the opposite reaction of, from what I would expect. It was actually everybody, I mean, the first thing they wanted to talk about when they saw me was UFOs, was their own UFO experience or their own abduction-type experience. And it was a little strange, you know. It's, we're talking Groton, Vermont, which is a population of about 850 people, and a good portion of those are my relatives. <laughs> so just doing the math in my head, you know, it's like any any sort of large percentage any percentage of that is going to seem large, you know, and so just taking into account uh, my relatives, our neighbors, and uh, their stories about other friends in town who've had these experiences, it, you know, it kind of creeps me out a little. It makes me wonder if there aren't pockets of small towns where, you know, these things just affect them. Uh, you know, maybe two generations ago it started out, and then we, you know, through the generations, it spread out into cities and spread all over, and, you know, if it's true that this stuff is intergenerational then we're bringing it with us, you know? Before we even engage in that particular discussion. Fake Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. 
We have our Paranormal UFO Roundtable in progress with Jeremy Vaney, Jeff Ritzman, Alan Greenfield. David? So, as you were saying that, Jeremy, um, and, and we, of course we'd like to know some specifics, but it almost made me think, well, are we talking about something that is sourced uh, at the location that might be some sort of a... How do I say this? I mean, is the location the cause for what was going on, or was it serendipity that... And, and when you talk about UFO uh, sightings and abductions, I guess you have to get a little more specific about that. Are we talking about a generational thing, you know, a family thing, or are we talking about a geographic thing, you know, sort of, sort of along, the limes, uh, along the lines of, okay, look, there's a lot of limestone under this area, there are a lot of ghost sightings here, which definitely seems, there seems to be some kind of correlation, and I'm going to ask Alan about that later, but what did you get the sense of, and, and could you give us some specifics about what people were telling you? Well, um, the first thing that happened was, uh, you know, I stepped off a bus and an aunt who was married into the family, who I don't really know, I maybe met her once or twice, uh, so I didn't recognize her. She had a little alien sign in her hand, you know, so that was, know that that was who she was. <laughs> so that was my first introduction to my relatives knowing about this. Uh, and she immediately, you know, in the car ride, <laughs> she, immediately, <laughs> she immediately... Uh, wanted to tell me, you know, it's the stereotypical, now I don't tell anybody this, and when I say I don't talk about it, I mean I don't talk about it, not to my husband, not to my family, not to anybody. Uh, and then proceeds to tell me, uh, in 1993, on her way from New Hampshire to Massachusetts, uh, you know, feels the impulse to pull off at a Franklin exit, and sees this object with purple lights descend into a rest stop, and she pulls into the rest stop and watches it land in front of her, and there's one other car in there. There's a guy slouched down in his seat, in the front seat. He doesn't really seem to be paying attention, though. She gets out of her car. She knocks on his window. She says, are you seeing this? And he says, yep. And she says, uh, do you think we should approach it? And he says, uh, nope. She gets back in her car. She leaves. She has no sense of missing time. Uh, she's aware of all these things, you know, in terms of missing time, UFO, all that stuff. I mean, she's been paying right. attention since then. Right. So, but she definitely suspects that something big happened there in spite of no missing time. And, you know, it, it, it reminded me actually of Ritzman's experience of, uh, you know, see, picking up that hitchhiker and then seeing him change before mm -hmm. his eyes and not being able to tell, even remembering back, you know, what kind of car he had. I mean, I asked her, you know, what, was, what did the car look like? I mean, it's only 93, you know, it's not that long ago. And uh, she can't remember the car, and she can't remember. She said anytime she tries to concentrate on the man's face, it's just a brown blur. And hmm. she sort of confided that she isn't completely certain that that wasn't some sort of screen thing, projection, memory. I don't know what something that that didn't that that guy wasn't actually there because she said uh, it was completely um, besides those bits of fact. It was completely odd for her and against her uh, personality to a take that exit <laughs> and go off course and B, to get out of her car and approach anybody. Like, those are just not things that she would do. So that whole thing is weird. And then she said, uh, since then, you know, she's been sort of uh, looking to the skies all the time to see if anything else would happen and nothing. But she does have these recurring dreams about her mother who is deceased. And anytime she has a dream about her mother, somebody steps into the dream and it doesn't feel like it's of her consciousness. It feels like some outside thing steps into the dream and interrupts it, and she, you know, vaguely has a sense that it relates back to 
whatever this experience was with the, the purple lighted object. Now, she didn't want to, she wanted to remain anonymous. She didn't really want to talk about it for my podcast, but she said she will at Christmas time. She'll, the more she's thinking about it and she's like making notes to herself and sketching out what she saw and all that. So hopefully I'll have that by Christmas. Uh, so that was the first thing, and that was, you know, a right off the bus sort of thing. So, I, I, you know, I'm there, you know, my grandfather is sick in the hospital and dying, and, you know, all these people want to talk about his UFOs. <laughs> it's just crazy. <laughs> so that was number one. And then number two was my my uh, uncle, not her husband, but another uncle, who I've talked about in terms of my own UFO sighting, having this giant synchronicity of seeing what was clearly a piece of technology in the sky with my mom and sister on our way to our grandfolks and telling them about it and thinking they would laugh at us and instead they had Time Life Mysteries the Unexplained on the coffee table and uh, it turns out our uncle had had a UFO sighting. Um, now my mother and sister never remembered that bit but it's true and so I finally um, got my uncle to speak on tape about it and um, you know, sure enough he tells of his UFO sighting out on a mountaintop with uh, three friends you know, he's on a double date and whatever this thing was, you know, scared him enough to run inside the house. Uh, you know, it was lights in the sky. It was, he said they weren't up in the clouds, they weren't in the trees, they were in the clearing, you know. And it was completely silent and sort of an amorphous object attached to these lights. He couldn't really make out what, what the thing was. But nothing else, as far as he knows, outside of that experience. Mm-hmm. Nothing um, else. You have quite a family. Yeah, well, and then you know, get- most families barely have one weird thing to talk about. You've just got an endless selection. Well, here's here's what's probably even the most amazing of of all of them, is their neighbor, who I've known all my life. I think she's probably lived there all of her life. I don't know. She she's got to be in her seventies by now. Uh, at the showing for you know our grandfather the day before the funeral. I mean, she walked into the room, and she came right up to me. I mean, like, jaunted across the room right up to me. And she's like, I, I saw your website. I, I heard about what you're doing. I think it's absolutely fascinating, and I just want to tell you. And it's the same setup as my aunt. I want to tell you something that I don't talk about, blah, blah, blah. And I, uh, I said, do you not talk about it because you're afraid people are going to laugh at you? And she said, no, I don't talk about it because uh, I don't care if they laugh. I just don't want people to explain to me what I saw as though I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay, that's interesting. So then she told me what, what she saw, which was, uh, she said there was no full moon out, but driving along and saw a giant globe sitting on top of the mountain. She said it was whitish pink. It was ju- just a huge globe of light, you know, about as big as the moon. And then it shot off. <laughs> it just shot off. Mm-hmm. So that was her sighting. And then she starts talking about other friends that she knows who have had UFO sightings and starts sort of running off a list, uh, and in there says a guy who was abducted for three days. So I am like, whoa, 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 whoa back. Oh, what? Yeah, I, I said, I, I abducted for three days. I said, Travis Walton? I'm thinking, that's the only case I know about. Maybe she yeah. knows Travis Walton for some reason. She says, no, 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 not Travis Walton. She gives me the guy's name. And she says, you know, this is somebody who I used to babysit for. Uh, not, not babysit him, but babysit his kids. And, um, yeah, he came, he was missing for three days. He came back. He remembers bits and pieces, but not the whole thing, of an abduction scenario. <laughs> and I just looked at her, and I'm like, do you realize practically everyone in this room has stories similar to what you're telling me, and none of you are talking to each other because you're all afraid the other person's going to ridicule you? And, and you're all, you've all got the same secret, you know? It's like crazy to me. And meanwhile, my skeptic sister is standing right next to me, and I'm like, and I'm just looking at her like, yeah, <laughs> be a skeptic now. And she's like, Vindication. Yeah, you know, 
Yeah, because, I mean, and this happens, like, even around her own friends who are like, well, you know, they'll do the same thing. Like, oh, you're in UFOs, well, let me tell you your UFO story, my UFO story. And, uh, yeah, so she's like, wow, it's really weird how people just sort of, they find out what you do, you know, write for a UFO magazine or whatever, and then they want to start talking to you about this stuff. But but there's still that wall, you know what I mean? Even though she's saying this, even though she's hearing it, it's still, there's still that wall of, I don't want to believe this, you know? So it's really interesting oh. to see all these dynamics playing out at the same time in that room of my grandfather's, on the, the eve of my grandfather's death, you know? Hmm. Maybe something more complex than they don't want to believe this. And it made me think about something Jeff and I have spoken about, which is maybe they can't talk about it for some reason outside of their, their conscious control. Well, there's definitely, which, there's definitely that. You know, my sister and I have had the same exact dreams, talk about the exact dreams, uh, for years about that house in Vermont and about Vermont itself. You know, nothing tragic has ever happened to us there, and yet we have these same sort of, you know, spiders on the lawn, vampires upstairs sort of, you know, nightmare type things. And we always thought it was kind of funny. You know, I was telling my mom about that. And my mom is also, you know, completely skeptical for whatever reason. And I told her, you know, in my dreams, I have this recurring getaway scheme in the, in the house where I can, you know, there are all these tunnelings in the house. And so I can sort of go around the tunnelings and get away from whatever it is in the dream. And she says, oh, well, you probably have heard us talking about the fact that there are these tunnels running, running under Groton. And, and incorporated that in your dream. Like, what? I've never heard this. Uh, tunnels? Yeah. Under so the t- she told me there there's apparently a whole tunnel system that goes up to the general store. It used to be like a bootleg town, or there used to be some sort of maybe alcohol running or something, you know, way, way back when. And so, you know, I've never heard this story, but I don't know. It's just another interesting little thing. You know, who really? Did these guys really build tunnels that went from the store to somewhere else, or did they just use tunnels that exist? You know, there are all these little things that the sci-fi author in me sort of wants to latch onto and, and sort of explore. Hmm. Whoa. What a family. <laughs> you know, now, which institution were they all living in at the time this happened? Which institution? This is a bad joke. This is Gene's oh. idea of a bad right, joke. Here, let me just give the knock on it. Alan, you've been blissfully quiet here, and maybe there's justification of that, but listening to all this stuff going on, with these two gentlemen, do you have any surface reactions or questions? Well, on the first issue, the um, the new house, I wanted to. I mean, that goes back a little bit, so I want to. I wanted to ask a couple of questions, um, and I may be sounding unduly skeptical, and that it's not meant to be. Um, uh, like you said, a move is can be very stressful. It's something I avoid <laughs> as much as possible, but. I'm wondering about the smoke smell because I've, I grew up in a non-smoking home, as as you know, and uh, have been around smoking very little in my life, any more than I have to be. And as it has gradually become a less widespread habit, I've been very happy about that, but partly because I'm allergic and partly because I just don't, I, I think. Looked at from afar in the universe, it must seem a very strange habit to say nothing of, as it turns out, rather dangerous. If he grew up in a non-smoking environment or has a lives in a non-smoking home and is therefore, as I am, very sensitive to the smell of cigarettes, I can come in a room, for example, where someone had been smoking uh, an hour before and I will smell smoke immediately, um, um, cigarette smoke. 
I mean, I don't smoke marijuana either, and uh, I can also smell that half a mile away. It's uh, just interesting walking in the neighborhood and <laughs> knowing who does and who doesn't, but uh, um, whether there was a sensitivity about that. And on the other hand, whether there was a sensitivity about moving into a home where someone had recently passed away. Did they die at home? Did they die in the hospital? What's the... What's the Skinny on that. And then I've got another more less psychological and more physical question to ask. My parents didn't smoke. I smoked from the time that Cody was born until uh, three and a half, four years ago I stopped. So, uh, at least in this house, there's never been a smoker out of the three of us in my, my household. As far as the previous owner's wife, I know that she died of cancer. And I'm surmising that through a lot of what people have said because I haven't asked directly exactly what she died from. And I don't know that she died in the home. It's unlikely, uh, especially if she, uh, if she died of cancer. Well, and, and here's the other... Right. And the other part that kind of confounds me about it is that I don't think she smoked. And I'll tell you why I don't think she did. was because when we moved to, went to move in and we had our last walkthrough... Our carport driveway has overhanging garage on it. There was a very short, maybe four-foot-tall gate on the front of the driveway, uh, carport. And I asked the owner, I said, what, what's this for? Uh, I, I'm confounded. Did you let the dog out on the driveway or something? What's, what's the deal with that? And he said, no, my wife did child care for decades. And we used to have the kids out in the summertime to sit in the under the carport and play outside without getting sunburned. So we had that. So I can't imagine that, uh, and he said she did that right up until she got sick. So I can't imagine that she would be a smoker or have smoking going on in the house if she's taking care of people's children, especially not within the past 10 or so, 12 years. So that kind of strikes me as somebody who probably wouldn't smoke in the house because children, babies are going to be in the house. I don't know that for sure. I'm like you at this point. If somebody's smoking or does smoke or they're around me and they smoke, I can tell immediately. I have not smelled anything. My son is the only one that has said that so far. What kind of heating system do you have? It is base baseboard heat and it's never actually been turned on in this room until tonight because I'm in it. <laughs> so, um, most times we only run the uh, living room and dining room, which is down a hallway from this room. This room I actually. Mean, I don't know if you're, if you're following where I'm going. I'm looking for. I know you said you cleaned the house out, but I'm looking sure. for ducting and things. Sure. Up until sure. ten or twelve years ago, it would not have been that strange for someone to be smoking around children. Until all the stuff about secondhand smoke uh, sank in, people were. Uh, it, was, it was just done. If you watch old movies, it's amazing how uh, I remember <laughs> yeah. when when smoking was just like anywhere was okay, you know, and right. uh, and uh, including in a hospital room. And it's just just not the patient, but you know, somebody lighting up as they're going down the hall. It was and uh, that's all they uh, did was smoke. But right now we're just about out of hour number one. We're going to continue in hour number two with Alan Greenfield, Jeff Ritzman, and Jeremy Vaney on the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If 
If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Hour number two of our UFO Paranormal Roundtable featuring Alan Greenfield, Jeff Ritzman, Jeremy Faney. We were talking about smoke in the house. And the only thing I have to add to that is when I was a child, I went through a period where I did smell smoke around the house and nobody in my family smoked. And it went on for a few weeks and then disappeared. I guess I was nine or ten years old at the time. Mm. And maybe there was an answer, but that's my uh, smoke episode. Did you live in an apartment or a freestanding house? It was an apartment, but mm. nobody in our surroundings was a smoker that I would know about. Well, but you don't know because people have guests over, guests smoke. If it's a non-smoking household, you know, step out on the terrace and smoke. You terrace? Know. Yeah, well, it, uh, that's the apartment, right? This was a tenement in Brooklyn. Well, the, you know, uh, people smoking and hanging out the window, you know, out on the fire escape. You know, with things like, like that, at my girlfriend's house where, where, where she and her three kids live, the owner of that house, who had been a smoker, I think had passed away in the house. And this has now happened more than a few times when I've been over there. Uh, where we will smell cigarette smoke fairly strong, it'll appear and then it'll go away. And um, and it's a freestanding house, so who knows? I mean, it, it, it's well, really the only thing I can think of is is, is things that have um, ducts that um, uh, air conditioning or that haven't been uh, thoroughly vacuumed out in years, or a fireplace, or there used to be a fireplace and it's been bricked over and you don't even notice it. And it depends on the age of the house and the part of the yeah. country and so forth, because as we were pointing out uh, during the break, um, the smell of smoke is one of those smells that tends to, to hang in even for years and sometimes decades. Um, uh, I was talking about uh, a house fire that I had had at the, in the 1970s, and I have some, not too many things, but I have some books from that period, and the books, if you, you can see a a darkening along the spine of the book, and if you smell it, it smells like a campfire that's been put out, and yeah. that's for what almost forty years ago. So. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing that I asked my son was, "Did you have, did you turn the heat on in the room?" Mm-hmm. Because old baseboard heaters, if you turn them on and they haven't been on for a year, they're going to smell like burning. Yeah. And uh, not like uh, cigarettes, the, but like uh, no. Like wet dog hair is what we describe. Yeah, well, it's that it's that electrical fire smell, you know. Yeah. And uh, and I said to him, I said, could it be that? Could it have wafted in from another room if you turned the heat on when you came home from school? And he said, no, I didn't turn it on. I said, well, you know, it it could be literally anything. I mean, I'll put it to you this way: I have since I quit smoking, I have gone to the grocery store and passed by someone in the parking lot with a cigarette. And when I get home, I can smell it on my sleeve. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it's such an infectious uh, odor when it when it gets around you that it could literally be anything. So, like I said, I'm usually pretty sensitive about 
seeing and feeling things in certain places, and um, and I'm kind of a uh, I don't know. When I first moved in here, I was a little bit on edge for that because I thought to myself, "Am I moving from a place where something obviously weird is going on, and am I moving into some place that's worse?" <laughs> and I was pretty well peaked for just about anything for a while, and I purposely stayed up a couple of nights very late just to turn the TV off and sit in the living room and just listen to the house so I could familiarize with myself with what a house sounds like when it settles again, because it's been 16 years. And then there's some noises, and to be honest with you, the most horrifying thing that's happened since I moved in this house was taking boxes up to the attic and finding a squirrel in the attic, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I'm going to get the squirrel. <laughs> but uh, uh, that's been about it, really. And 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 by the way, the squirrel did account for one of the early things I heard. What sounded like someone walking above us in the bedroom. And um, and when I went up uh, the ladder, uh, this great fold-down ladder to the attic, uh, the previous owner had left a mirror against the far left side of the house. This attic is absolutely immense because it's the entire length of the house. And um, as I got to the top, I looked down at this mirror that was sitting up against the wall in the far end of the attic, and it started to move. <laughs> and uh, I nearly pissed my pants because it started moving violently, and before I know it, I see this big furry ball jump out from behind it and jump out the eve of the house. So um, that explained the noises that I heard late at night going up the steps. Uh, well, at least there's nothing unearthly. There. Right, <laughs> right. Well, we had mean, a couple I, of weeks of straight ghost-related shows here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and I've recently joined a ghost group, so you know okay. it's you know I'm I'm kind of peaked to hear or see anything, and I don't feel or see anything uh, weird about it. In fact, I'm much more comfortable here than I ever was in our last residence. So personally, but, I haven't seen anything yet. But let's hope it. Let's hope for your sake it stays that way. Absolutely. You know? Yep, absolutely. Which is kind of funny because I know that there are people who would hear me say that and they would say, "Well, no, 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 Jeff's experiences are cool. <laughs> you know, we want to hear more stuff." And uh, this, you know, kind of brings me out. I'd like to kind of step back to a meta topic here because um, we're kind of drilling down on something. And uh, I had really tonight wanted to sort of uh, talk about the year two thousand eight in terms of UFO activity. And I know that for a lot of Americans, there's a sense that things have been quiet. Of course, we had the Stevensville stuff earlier in the year, which was really fascinating. And then, uh, you know, because I'm fascinated about South America, we've had a tremendous amount of activity. There's been practically a wave of UFO activity in Argentina. Well, not practically a wave. I think it's fair to call it a wave. Oh, yeah. It's a 1973-type wave. Um, It's it's tremendous, and uh, it's... Uh, Inexplicata has been uh, covering it That's for yep. English-speaking, Spanish-deficient people, and I must say I am impressed by not all the cases. Some of them are suspicious, and I, the cross-circle stuff and uh, cows getting uh, cut up. Uh, that's we've we've been there before. <laughs> I'm not going to be over-impressed by that, but some really good UFO cases and mm-hmm. some. Really good uh, photos, too. But also in the English Midlands, coinciding, beginning, uh, not to touch on dangerous areas, but beginning in July, uh, it's it's uh, also a substantial wave of really 
first-class uh, sightings uh, by uh, better-than-average witnesses, which I guess has a lot to do with the first-class sighting um, in the English Midlands. Uh, I would say the Latin American cases uh, overlap into the Southwest, uh, out where you you live, Gene, uh, and, and especially in Texas. But you know, I wanted to ask you about that. Okay, you raised the subject. The last time you were on the show, you suggested, based on the UFO-related cipher and everything, that there could be an important UFO-related event or events in or around Houston. Now, we had some messages about this at the time, some skeptical, as you might expect. Now, before we ask you to amplify this, precisely what did you predict or anticipate? Well, first of all, I didn't predict that that term. Uh, I may have used it too, but I have I have become very careful about that. This is not a psychic uh, thing that I do. If any people who have read my books, which I urge them to do, they're available free in PDF format. I raised my hand. I've read it. Yes, read both. Yes, um, um, both of them. Uh, yes. Yeah, the methodology is purely mechanical. And uh, uh, with a little, maybe a little intuition uh, to to fill in, but it is certainly not any kind of psychic messages or beamed. You know, it's it doesn't fall into that kind of category. And I'm really not predicting. I'm forecasting in the same manner that a meteorologist forecasts the weather. And like the weatherman, sometimes you're going to be. Excuse me, the the meteorologists. Many of them are female. Uh, some are going to be. Um, uh, accurate, uh, predominantly, and some are not. Um, I initially, con- in this particular case, I feel that I did not get a, a particularly good rap, and uh, I, I actually went to the trouble of writing Saucer Sneer to basically uh, uh, get a kind of I wouldn't say retraction. Jim Mosley is a good friend of mine, but uh, he, he seemed to be implying that I had predicted a landing and abduction, and I had a long talk with him about it afterwards, and uh, I, I was pointing out that within 12 hours of the time that I predicted, there was, in fact, uh, two, not one, but two really um, good sightings. And he said, well, sightings don't impress me. I said, but that's all I called for. No, you called for a landing. So I went back and I listened to the show, you'll be happy to know, three times to listen to exactly what I said uh, because I wanted to make sure that I was not exceeding what my evidence was. And I didn't. I didn't slip up on it or anything. I said exactly what I thought, a major UFO event. Well, it was within 12 hours, there was a UFO with multiple witnesses spotted over the manned space flight center. In, in Houston, uh, I would call that a hit. In addition, there's a more suspect uh, film from the same 12-hour period. And that film has disappeared from, from the Internet, and I'm very puzzled by that. Um, I've looked everywhere that I can. I also am aware that, that UFOs, <laughs> despite what you were saying about there not being cases all the time, they're... There are cases all the time of, of at least lights in the sky and so forth. So if you want to make a claim, you, you, I, I would call a light in the sky not a hit on this particular uh, instance. I did say it would be a major event, a good case. 
and I considered uh, one of those, uh, the, the one over the Man Flight Space Flight Center, almost spooky, because if you want one in Houston to be showing something, where else? I mean, they don't launch rockets there, just so that everybody knows. That's where they control once they are in space, and uh, um, um, that was a Lyndon Johnson project. I think it's even called the uh, Lyndon B. Johnson Manned Space Flight Center. And, Who um, saw the UFOs um, there? Was it people working there, or just witnesses? No, 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 no. They were independent witnesses, but uh, but not people who were out looking for UFOs. I would have been happy if someone had. Actually, I heard from no one either way that was uh, out looking. So I assume no no one was, which disappoints me. But. Uh, but uh, although you know, just looking at the sky doesn't guarantee anything. But this was uh, the location is south of Houston, which is what I predicted, and in a location that makes it a significant case, regardless. And uh, I believe it was also a radar-confirmed case. So I'm I'm, I'm going to stick with that. The film I'm a little more puzzled about. It's interesting that also within that 12-hour period, there was a dynamite case in England, but of course I can't claim credit on, on that one, but that's when the Midlands thing started with, uh, with I believe, a pilot sighting. I haven't looked at that too closely. What I did do as a control was um, I didn't speak too much on the subject uh, immediately afterwards because I know that the better the case, the more likely it is to come in later. So I kept searching the internet and searched backwards and forwards too. There was no, there were no reported UFO cases for a couple of weeks before, a couple of weeks afterwards in or around Houston. Who investigated um, the case? Um, I'm, I'm not done because there's some spooky stuff here too. <laughs> before it gets too spooky. Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO magazine. magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give it 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time when we just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com. Subscribe online. You happy? Yeah, was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
We're talking with Alan Greenfield, Jeremy Vaney, Jeff Ritzman, a UFO Paranormal Roundtable. And Alan, you said spooky stuff. Tell us about the spooky stuff. Yes, some of it is 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 really bizarre. I think it's not unbizarre that um, that uh, of all places the the UFOs are seen over the place we most associate with our space program, as if to say, uh, "Here you go, Alan. <laughs> you, know, you, you want you want something that shows connection with the space flight." And of course, I'm not an advocate of the uh, ETH at all, but uh, the stuff that uh, approached uh, high weirdness, I did diligent searches to see if uh, UFO cases would or would not show up um, and reported on this, by the way, on my uh, live journal, but in some detail. And I believe I sent you a letter as well, uh, a copy of the letter that I sent to Mosley, which he was kind enough to publish and which I would like to say a little bit about it. I kind of lost my place on there. Uh, uh, it's all right. The point being that the emphasis here is that events that occur. And right, but oh, yeah. investigate. Okay, so here I, so here I am. I, I, who investigated it? I just want to know who who's saying that this is a major case. Who investigated it and said yes, this is a major well, case? Well, I, I assert that it's a major case. The investigator it was uh, it was uh, Mufon report. So, and do they do they say it's a major case? Are they hanging their hats on it? I'm just I'm curious. Yeah, they, yeah, you see, this is the argument that I had with Mosley. I did not predict the uh, the, the landing on the White House lawn. <laughs> I, uh, I forecast a major, maybe I should have been more careful as to define, because what is major to some is not major to others. I meant more than a light in the sky, less than the great landing. And mostly seems to want the great landing or nothing at all, or it isn't, you know, it isn't a correct uh, 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 forecast. And so I, I'm reconfirmed in my original opinion, which is I only, you know, gave the uh, forecast reluctantly because what I want people to do is impress themselves. Read the books, which again they're free now. You know, I mean, you can send a contribution to me if you think you got something worthwhile out of it, because I have a donation box on my website. But uh, you don't have to do anything. Read the books and do some cases of your own. It's much more impressive when you've worked it out and you say it's going to be here on this date, blah blah blah, and it'll be of this intensity and whatever else you're able to find out using the cipher. But if you don't understand that, then then we get down to quibbling about what is or is not a major case. I, I define a major case as an unsolved case in a significant location with multiple witnesses. That comes into the major category. The minor category would be a light in the sky seen by a single person of undetermined uh, nature and uh, possibly... Uh, explainable in the most conventional terms, but not, but technically a UFO since it has not at to date been explained in those terms. Alan, just before we move on here, where can oh, I check your book out? Check out the online copies of the book. How to do that? Yeah, tell people where to go. Oh, well, the, the easiest way, I mean, it's on Scribe, and the easiest way to, to get the PDF version is just to uh, Google the, the name of either of the book, uh, Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts or Secret Rituals of the Men in Black, PDF. And that will send you to the scribe site that I have put up, 
and you can just download it, and either one is free, and both of them are there, along with several other things that I've written. So, and it's uh, exactly, I mean, it's a, a very, very good um, uh, professional-level um, PDF, so um, it's it's what you would ordinarily pay for, but the, at this point, it's important to me to get the information out, and my quarrel with my publisher of that period caused the book to be pulled down as a, as a hard copy edition, and I just, I'm trying to see to it that uh, that people have access to it. Again, if they want to send a contribution, I can certainly use it to keep the, the heat on here, because uh, I live poor and I support a family, <laughs> but not required. I think, unfortunately, that's true with just about everybody in this country, except for maybe half of 1%. That would be uh, a great program to do right there. Things are, I think, worse than people realize. I'm married to an MBA, and I assure you, <laughs> things are really bad. But that's a whole other story. Let me tell you my really spooky, keel-like weirdness, okay, on this case, and then we can move on. It's just, it's just one of those things. I'm looking around the Internet. I don't do a lot of... Um, Searching, but on this particular case, I was—I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a—I uh, do a lot of work on the internet, but I don't. What is it? I don't, I don't just browse for for leisure. But in trying to run down what did and did not happen during that roughly 24-hour period, I did some searching for for weeks before, during, and after that period until I had satisfied myself that we had—you know—we're no longer in that period of time. And I, this is probably on the, the um, 5th of July. I put in UFOs July 3rd, which is the way I, you know, was searching, not for any particular place or circumstance or whatever. And it takes me to a, the first site that's up there takes me to a site that has nothing to do with UFOs at all. But it says Texas UFOs. Thursday, July 3rd, 2008, the date I predicted. Quote, the Texas political atmosphere leans towards fiscal and social conservatism. Get your now Requo team video highlights when they happen. The influx of immigration is partially responsible for Texas having a population younger. The annual Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo is the largest rodeo in the world. It turns out that Alan, spelled the way my name is spelled, which is the less common spelling, didn't have to wait very long. And the next time I went to the site, it wasn't there. Hmm. Now, is that spooky? I mean, I, I, I'm sure there is some way that somebody could hack and rig that, but I, I, it's, it's like keel phone calls, you know? It's just really, really effing weird. And uh, when I saw that, I was careful to copy it because I thought if I go back, it'll be something different. It was. Well, th there are ways to hack that, and uh, you know, with the, the I didn't say the, the word, but who? Yeah. You've got to presuppose that somebody went to the trouble to do that and thought that I would be searching in that particular methodology, and that I would find it, and that it would do what it did. I don't get freaked out. I enjoy this sort of thing. You know, right. no, I, I, years, I go, whoopee. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm not trying to say that someone specifically hacked that. The other thing, especially if you did this on something like Google, is that the way that Google indexes, it, it con it's, sometimes it's constantly shifting around. 
you know, based on even, yeah, based on what you typed into the search field, even a slight misspelling can generate, I mean, radical, uh, radically different results. I'm not trying to suggest that's what happened here. Just when we're talking about uh, computer technology and the indexing technology behind things like Google, you can sometimes get exceedingly weird results that you would would never expect. So I, I appreciate that you're saying it's weird. I'm not trying to say that I specifically understand how that happened, but it's certainly possible. I'm not even saying it's probable, but it's possible. Uh, of course, that, it's that, possible. That um, but I find it highly unlikely. It hasn't happened. That sort of thing has not happened to me before. And just to cut to the chase, what I get at this site with the, again UFOs, July third, two thousand and eight, which is what I googled. And of course, it, it you know Google is a fuzzy logic thing. It, it it conforms to your interest, but this is not. It has nothing to do with UFOs. It says. Then there is this in scanning media looking for July 3rd UFO cases in Texas. And it goes, uh, Texas UFOs, Thursday, July 3rd, 2008, blah, 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 totally nonsense stuff. And then it turns out that Alan, A-L-L-E-N, didn't have to wait very long. Hmm. Now that's, <laughs> it may be... Unless somebody <laughs> hacked the site for your benefit, which is almost crazy, because they'd have to anticipate that of all the sites out there, you'd go to that one, you'd look for that particular piece of content or expect to see it or something like that. Yeah, it was top of the page, too. I mean, it was sure. not, I don't think it was first, I think it was second item, you know. Mm-hmm. I have places that I check that I know that, you know, post UFO sightings all over the world all the time. So I check those first, and I was just doing this to be thorough because this is something that we we did and did on the air, which was... What this teaches me is people got to do it themselves. This is pretty spooky, and I, I would give myself a B plus on this, and I would consider it. Uh, my initial response was it was a nothing sensational, but in reviewing the whole thing, I think it's uh, it exceeds expectations if you take all of this together. Um, um, and um, I'm happy with it, and if others aren't, they can. Uh, well, at some point, I'd be glad to read the letter that I sent to. Uh, Saucer smear that uh, my good friend Jim was kind enough to publish because I didn't want people to think that I was going around predicting stuff, and I wasn't. So stepping back out to this meta picture that I was referring to before about um, what appears to have been this year a pretty serious upswing in activity, late last year in November we had this uh, really fascinating press conference that was held by Leslie Keene and, and James Fox, where they had a number of uh, very high, highly placed, high-end ex-military and current military people coming out and talking about the veracity of, of the UFO uh, phenomenon. Then this year, we've had a pretty serious upswing of activity, but yet what we have seen, uh, certainly with things like Bill Burns' UFO Hunters show... Um, is kind of this continuing, how do I say this uh, <laughs> nicely, sort of this continuing trend towards making entertainment out of this. Are we at a point now where, for example, uh, maybe and maybe this bifurcation has been always been going on, and I'm curious about what Jeff and, and Jeremy think about this. Are we at a point where there is any more opportunity to move the discussion forward in any kind of a, of a rational way, 
given that there's been an upswing in activity A, B, there seems to be a bifurcation in terms of um, the way people look at this. And, I, and I'm thinking about the kinds of emails we get at the Paracast from people thanking us for trying to, to move this discussion forward in any kind of a constructive way versus uh, spinning in the dirt the way that certainly a lot of other radio shows are. And uh, a, a couple weeks of, of weeks from now, a few weeks from now, we're going to be taking another character uh, who has kind of muddied the waters, and we're going to end up crucifying this guy on the show. The day we're recording this right now, we recorded the first half of a show where we actually have our very first hang-up. Uh, we, we took a charlatan out, we, we beat him up, and he couldn't take it. Relentlessly. Relentlessly. We didn't yell at the person. We just... Uh, no, no, we just... Steady. We, steady straight ahead. We just gave them... You know that your program has a reputation for being hard-ass? Good. Good. Someone. I'm not said, saying it's bad, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm just pointing it out. I don't even know if you know it because you're friendly guys, you know. But you're, but uh, you're 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 tough. Your your questioning's tough, incisive, uh, not always right. I don't think. But that, who is, you know? But the who point is. is yeah. Well, I mean, we haven't pretended yeah. to be always correct, which says that we're 100 percent correct. What is correct? Somewhere power. below Joe Pine, may he rest in pine. And uh, <laughs> pine saw uh, guy was that the guy who invented pine saw? That guy smelled like weird. No, that's the guy that took everybody on the show and and loved to have on people who for some reason wanted to be on and beat up on them uh, verbally and on rare occasions not so verbally. I mean, he just walked out with the whips. He didn't bring him out later. <laughs> well, Jim doesn't. In fact, I like to do that all the time. Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380. 800-715-4380. Or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com. 1-800-715-4380. Airy Radio. Opening the door to the unknown. Download episodes of Erie Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.erieradio.com. We're talking to Jeremy Vaney, Jeff Ritzman. And last and certainly not least, Alan Greenfield. And we were talking about the fact that he was trying to say that Jim Mosley got his hat handed to him. He doesn't even wear a hat, I don't think. By Joe Pine, who was one of the early abrasive talk show hosts. Before there was a Jerry Springer. It was a Joe Pine. Before well, there was a Bill O'Reilly. Springer has a sense of humor, and sure. uh, Joe Pine had none. Uh, he was he was mean. He was just mean. I mean, I, I would say that you're doing more Mike Wallace type uh, interviewing that uh, 
where where you don't take a lot of BS. Or in the early days, I did some stuff with. Um, oh, he's now a libertarian. I think I made him a libertarian. Even though I'm not one, but I brought up the subject of the show. Uh, Neil Bortz. Yeah, Neil can be pretty pretty hard on people, but uh, but he he's within the realm of civility, uh, and uh, that's that's appropriate. Joe Pond was not. When he had uh, Doctor Strange's, may he uh, rest in that wonderful abode in the sky that is reserved for clergymen such as he. He called him a snake oil salesman, and they put a light on his hair, which is was very slipped down. Those of us who knew him, you know, very slipped down. And of course, he just sat there and took it. Now, if somebody had said that to me on a television program, I would have punched him out. I mean, no, no question about it. It would have been Bill Buckley and Gore Vidal uh, round two. There's no way I would put up with that kind of abuse in a public forum. But he took it. He took it. Jim Mosley took it. He had Gray Barker's phony uh, film. What was it called? Uh, the, the, the the Lost Lost Creek or something. Lost Creek. But that was like. Yeah, the, why do I remember thing. Gray Barker's hoaxes? I I have a completely. <laughs> And I don't consider them hoaxes. I consider them priming the pump. Well, it depends on how you look at it. You know, I, I, again, if we're dealing with a phenomenon that cannot be exactly seen or understood in a direct way, perhaps the mythos and the mythos creating, in other words, the way folklore un, uh, unfurls and develops, the way all mythos unfurls and develops, is actually the best way to understand it, which brings me to the Silver Bridge, uh, the, the reissue uh, of uh, the book with uh, my original 1970 introduction and with a brand new introduction that I wrote, which I think does it more justice, which treats the, uh, the, the, the Mothman phenomenon and the UFOs surrounding it and the people, more importantly, the people who observed and were around the scene, the investigators, and so forth, as uh, quasi-real, quasi-fictional characters, and one slides in freely with the other, and I think he gets closer to the truth. My intuition is it gets closer to the truth than those things which try to just list an endless uh, catalog of, what was it that you said about just uh, entertaining the troops with a, with a, a list of cases, and gosh, wow. By the way, I do have, uh, courtesy of the publisher, several copies of the Silver Bridge. If, uh, can I plug it? If people yes, I'll have our sales staff send you the bill later on. But go ahead. Okay. Well, uh, the I know you're not going to pay the bill anyway. It's you know. I don't, I don't. You know what? In honor of our close friendship, go for it, man. I guess that silence. Bishop. 171 at gmail dot com and ask about. The Gray Barker book autographed. I'll give you a special deal. While they last, I only have a small supply, courtesy of the publisher. Was Gray Barker related to Bob Barker? No. You sure? Yes, positive. Did Gray Barker love love dogs? <laughs> in the in the biblical. <laughs> oh, just like love dogs. Why'd you have to take it to that sick place? Um. Yes, he did actually, and the, and. and yeah. Oddly enough, if, if you haven't read The Silver Bridge, it talks a little bit about his visiting with his uh, uh, 
uh, I think brother and and right. sister-in-law and their nephews and nieces and their their dogs and playing with oh. dogs and so forth. Right. And there's also there was a case of a of a dog who was apparently picked up by a mothman and found dead in another location. Uh, all true. You proof that Gray Barker and Bob Barker are related because they both love dogs. Now, uh, Bob Barker is not an uncommon name. Um, now Benjamin Franklin, <laughs> who is a character in the book and also a real was a real person, may still be for all I know, is actually a descendant of Benjamin Franklin. This is Ben Franklin Jr. 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 Twice removed. Yeah, well, Jr. Jr. Not not. Not son of that would be something. Oh no, he um, might uh, be a vampire. You know, they're very popular these days. A vampire. Well, the original was a member of the Hellfire Club, so who knows? And vampires are indeed very popular these days. That's right. Blood sucking is uh, is on the rise, and and this is with George Bush leaving office, and still blood sucking is on the rise. Well, he hasn't left yet. Uh, uh you know, some would argue he left a long time ago. Uh, no, 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 no. Left office. He's definitely left a long time ago. Well, that's what I... It's okay. They're pl- planning on bringing in Jeb again. Dynastic and politics rules. Remember also they're planning on having Caroline Kennedy as senator from New York. You know, dynasty versus dynasty. He's eminently qualified. What are you talking about? Of course. So, Jeff, what else is going on with you in this roundtable discussion? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, Jeremy, why do you smell like Asag- Asiago cheese? Which is, a, I thought it was Limburger. That's Asiago, it's the good stuff. Uh, Jeff. You asked the question, were people, or, or is there an opportunity to inject different things into this now that it's become popular in the media and all of that? Right. No, no. <laughs> That's no. it? No? No, and let, me, and let me tell you why. All right. Because for the first time in about two and a half years, I had a meaningful discussion on AboveTopSecret.com. There was a gentleman who messaged me on the board and said, I would really like you to put your input into this thread. And it was called, okay, UFOs are real, now what? And it was a a thread where people were outlining their, their different premises and ideas about what things could be and what they couldn't be and how they felt about the current state. So I went in and, of course, went into my whole explanation of what I thought about it, I guess because I don't think about it what most people do. And and the thread actually went into a really good discussion. I mean, really good. Uh, to where I got to flesh out a little bit more of my thoughts on there than I have previously been able to do without wanting to throttle someone against the proverbial internet wall. And uh, if you can believe it, the very last sentence on the post or on the, uh, the, th- the thread that was there was... Um, Oh, good. I'm glad another member is showing up because he knows John Lear. Maybe he can give us a John Lear update. Oh, <laughs> and I I resisted temptation to say that, you know, well, yeah, that's just what we need on this thread. So, again, I, I really laid it out to the point where a lot of people look to this as entertainment. And the hobbyists need to be separated a little bit from the people who are honestly and earnestly curious about what's going on and because there's a definitive difference between the two and jeremy and i really quickly noticed that when we went onto another message board elsewhere on the net where you know we've got threads like uh what was it jeremy i'm a time lord and i'm an alien and all of that and people were filling up the responses uh Mm -hmm. 10 pages in less than a week 
to stuff like this. And Jeremy made a really good point. He said, what are you people after in this? Because this is not anything more than, as I wrote on my blog recently, was, you know, these are not aliens or time lords. These are probably nothing more than adolescents in their mom's basement or mom's computer. In between surfing porn, they're going to paranormal sites and screwing with people. And uh, I just said there's there's a definitive difference between being interested and being involved. And the people who seem to be interested, quote-unquote, are more in for an interesting story. Or like you encountered was a real Reader's Digest version. Give me an answer. The entitlement issue that we've talked about ad nauseum uh, for years now. And I think that actually went over well. Uh, And I actually went into thinking that the extraterrestrial hypothesis crowd have a hell of a lot to answer for. And it didn't get poo-pooed away. I mean, I really, it, it really did get talked about in a serious way. But at the end, what did we get? <laughs> and the answer, I think, for the majority of the UFO-interested public is no. I don't think they're up for deep thought on this subject. I think they're into the easiest answer, the, the one that makes sense to them, the one that you know usually relates back to the ETH again. Let, let me let me tell you what we're going to see now. I think over the next you know, number of years, in terms of the, the larger societal issues, I think we're going to find out that in many different realms, the the easy answers are not useful answers. Um, but we're going to find out that the the easy answers to our economic ills um, are not going to be very effective. I think there's there's going to be a reinforcement that uh, easy answers just aren't very useful. And maybe we might see uh, a place where people will become so desperate to get back on track that maybe, just maybe, and this is the optimist in me making a rare appearance, uh, maybe what we'll get is this, not I won't say return to understanding, but maybe we'll have a change in the trend, a, an inflection point in the curve where people will start to realize that, that there are not easy answers for things that are complex like our economy, like our, our political situation, like our, our cultural situation at this point. I think that a lot of the, the, the real causes for the economic situation we're in are, are really cultural more than anything. That, that sense of entitlement, the sense of deferring everything till tomorrow, the endless credit game. You know, the, 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 I think that the, the cows are coming home here. So maybe there's an opportunity, and this is something I've seen politically in the past, where when you do have significant uh, shifts, that there little doors open up, and you can maybe start to cram certain things through that were really hard to get through before. And and so maybe it's an optimist position I'm taking that perhaps there there might be some opportunity, especially you know, and I'm tying this into now this upswing in activity we've seen this year in places like South America, like uh, like Alan brought up in in uh, the UK. Maybe we'll continue to see a a furthering of what it does. I think appear to be a bit of a wave where there 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 might be some cases uh, that force us to perhaps reevaluate what have been these sort of um, very vertical modes of thinking. You know, there is this idea: well, the the extraterrestrial hypothesis versus the interdimensional hypothesis versus the the crypto terrestrial hypothesis when we had Jerome Clark on he was very quick to sort of put that down 
and make the statement that no, he doesn't think there are major species yet to be discovered on the planet Earth. Um, with all the respect that I have for Jerry Clark, uh, this is one place where I think he's wrong, or mm-hmm. certainly he doesn't have a full picture. So, you know, the, the trends change over time, and, and I think that maybe, just maybe, in the next two, three years, there, there might be an opportunity to shift the conversation because the, the, the context of the conversation will begin to shift. And, uh, and I'd like to think that, and I know that it, it's kind of funny uh, not to exclude Gene and, 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 uh, and Alan from this, but I know that there are a number of people out there that kind of, uh, Jeremy, Jeff, myself, I mean, there are people that think of us as kind of like these troublemakers in all of this, that you know, we, we are willing to sort of uh, speak unpopular truths and confront people who we find to be, you know, charlatans. I mean, Gene takes a very politically correct attitude much of the time, though that didn't happen with the guy we're skewering in two or three weeks. Well, let's just put it this way. I do things that I feel are appropriate, and I like to surprise and amaze people because that way people don't get completely bored with me. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line Mr. UFO at webtv.net Hi, my name is Richard Dolan you're listening to the Paracast with my two friends Gene Steinberg and David Biedney Before anyone else gets bored we have another session to spend with Alan Greenfield Jeff Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney in any order you want and by the way, in the old days when I was associated with Jim Mosley in a more direct fashion, I used to actually work for him. We did a few things in terms of... You made trouble. Yeah, you made some trouble. We were troublemakers. Not quite the way Jim made trouble. I think Jim is the first-class troublemaker. I was just the assistant or the assistant's assistant. Isn't that I, I, what they said at Nuremberg? I'm <laughs> just following orders? Yeah. Yes, yes Dr. Greenfield. Let me make a, an observation here, and it's a complicated one, so I'll try to keep it short, but bear with me momentarily. 
I'm not sure that the basic premise that's going down here is necessarily correct, or at least it's not in context. I think media world, which is with the 24-hour news cycle, etc., is uh, very, very pervasive. And, and with the Internet, which has been wonderful for certain kinds of communication and uh, wonderful for a lot of miscommunication as well, I think that you would find that there, that almost everything has become entertainment. Darfur is entertainment. That's not a very funny thing, but it's simply a, a broader picture. It's not like UFOs are mishandled uniquely. And it is true, there, there are two alternatives that are presented. Either they don't exist or there are extraterrestrials visiting the Earth, much as our own spacecraft are trying to visit other planets. But that is probably more relevant uh, when it's done on the History Channel or on Sci-Fi or on the Discovery Channel or on CNN increasingly than the treatment of some of the uh, political um, things that affect all of our lives all of the time. Uh, certainly the the financial crisis, they have Susie Orman on to explain what you should do with paying off your credit cards as if everybody was in the same kind of financial shape and as if everything boil down to um, uh, simplistic solutions. They, uh, That's I part of television, really, that you always look for a very simple solution to give to people. You don't get much better if you read the, the remaining newspapers. I understand the Chicago Trib is uh, on the verge of bankruptcy. It's already declared. Yeah. The Tribune Company declared. So that's the L.A. Times, Chicago Tribune, and some TV stations and some other newspapers. Well, it's, it's, it's the trend, and there are lots and lots of books. If you read books on, on economics, you have some diversity, um, but you have to dig. It's as if um, we have this very, very, in a uh, supposedly free society where, where open discussion is possible. The range of discussion that isn't considered to be kooky and is therefore dismissed is very, very narrow. I mean, it, the, the, the difference between the Democratic and Republican Party viewed in world terms is very narrow. Now, I'm, I'm not saying people shouldn't feel very passionately about which of those parties, assuming they support one or the other, they should support. But if you view it in world terms, we have we have everything from the uh, virtual fascism of Zimbabwe to the communism of uh, of Cuba or um, North Korea. And North Korea would actually be a more extreme example at this point in history, and all kinds of phases in between. Most. Uh, industrialized countries have some sort of social democracy. Social democracy isn't even a, 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 a subject for fit, fit for discussion in this country. Now, that's not taking sides. It's simply pointing out that the range of things that are allowed to be discussed in media world is very narrow. It's broader on the Internet, but it rapidly goes off into those things that genuinely are kooky that are just, you know, the, the prior choice economic system and other uh, things that are not really worth uh, 
more than a cursory examination to decide that it isn't worth examining. And we do that with everything. Uh, we do that with scientific subjects as well. Think about something like quantum physics and how it's explained on the uh, History Channel or on the uh, Discovery Channel or on uh, anything but perhaps Nova on, on the PBS. And you will find that it's very superficial, there are movies that use terms like the, the TV show Quantum Leap, which the name of the show is, is a preposterous misusing of the notion of, uh, of what a quantum leap is. Maybe a quantity leap or, or a person leap or a teleportation, but the show is essentially about a kind of teleportation. UFOs get the same treatment. It's this narrow treatment. There are a percentage of people, just as there are real quantum physicists who are serious and sometimes funded. There are serious ufologists who work very hard, and the, the numbers are not what one would hope for. But I think this popular literature, out of the millions of people that see the pop stuff, a few are going to go beyond it, and proportionately, it won't be very many, but uh, how many do you need? How many quantum physicists are there in the world? Not, not very many. How many uh, serious ufologists are there? Not very many. The difference is funding. Uh, the quantum physicists, partly because of military implications, get a lot of funding. Not in this country, but... <laughs> Uh, they used to and will again. My suspicion is that um, that the more we have of this mm, popular literature, however repugnant it is to serious people, some of it isn't so bad. I thought the X-Files was a reasonably good surface examination of what one would expect if, if one were in the position of a, of a uh, person who had had a relative abducted and spent nine years looking for that person um, in a position of modest authority, I, I think that uh, that was useful. And I think some of it is, is useful in generating legitimate interest as well. So it's, it's, it's not a clear line. It's a, it's a, um, you know, it's a Alan, broader thing. As far as the idea that the X-Files was useful in, uh, in fostering uh, intelligent conversation with us, I respectfully harshly disagree. I think it, it had the exact opposite effect. Um, I think it, it trivialized a lot of this. I think it it further uh, confused the issues. It spun connections between different aspects of the, the mythology that uh, really acted in a way to, to pollute the pool of serious conversation. I understand what you're saying, that perhaps it presented some, 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 some viewpoints that might have been somewhat constructed on something practical, maybe even realistic. But ultimately, uh, and and you know, it, I'm just speaking by, from my own experience. I know that uh, w when the X Files was on, that was at a time when I was not talking about any of my stuff and publicly at all, any of my experiences, any of my my knowledge of this topic. And uh, the X Files, what it did to me was make me realize that I that I should stay that way. Um, that. Uh, you know, people would then try to they would they would take a real story and then try to sort of work it into that mythos, where it did just you know there there was not I, you know to me uh, that was that was like a poison pill, 
And well, uh, you know, Dave, uh, just to interrupt you there for one sure. second, um, getting back to to tie it in with what you were saying originally about the next few years, this may be getting better or something. Don't you think that that the tie-in, much like the X Files, for the next few years? Is going to be 2012, and so it's not going to get better until nothing happens. Then, uh, yeah, I'm, I, you know that's a, a really great point, Jeremy. I'm very uh, frustrated with uh, with the attention being paid to that. With um, you know the, this, you know, I, I think that a lot of it is going to get tied into that. But I think uh, Y2K situation uh, still, for for some of us at least, uh, is still fairly fresh. We saw the build up to that. And uh, we we saw uh, you know what what came of that buildup, which was uh, the biggest uh, dry orgasm in the world. It was just ridiculous. Nothing happened. Nothing of any significance happened. Well, they saw a lot of computers. The greater scheme of things, I think some people would argue nine eleven happened within well, yeah, a, a relatively short period of time. And for me, and for a lot of other people, that changed everything. I'll tell you something. We only have a couple of moments left. And I just don't think we could start any discussion here without doing another two hours with that discussion. So, Alan, one more time, where can readers find more of the stuff you do and also your books? Yeah, I think the best thing to do, if you don't just want to Google my name, that's Alan, A-L-L-E-N, Greenfield, like it sounds, is just to write me at bishop171 at gmail.com. That's bishop 171 at gmail.com and I'll be glad to um, you know take up their particular interests whatever they whatever they want to do my book the story the hermetic brotherhood of light is available directly from me some copies of the silver bridge by Gray Barker is available uh, with the introduction autographed and I can steer people to other, th- other things free and not so free at Amazon or wherever, and I can also answer questions. I'm always glad to do so. Jeremy. Um, you can visit me online at the number two, ourmonologue.com. That's where I sort of host all of my, uh, my various websites. Okay. That was simple. That was short. Now, Jeff, you are working on a book, the book. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, it's not done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's probably, the end of that. It probably won't be done until uh, next spring, but uh, my website is www.thesecondeclipse.com. And you are starting up your uh, podcast again. Podcast start again uh, next weekend. Is that right? Ooh. Yeah. What sort of guests do you get on there? I'm not telling. Hey, this <laughs> is your chance, man. We're giving you the chance. Ch- Listen, Jeff. It's huge. It's huge. Jeff and I are actually, what he's not telling you is we're taking a vacation. We're taking a vacation to a little land called Paratopia. Paratopia. <laughs> that, that's all. Boy, that's definitely like Never Never Land, huh? That's right. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's in the Grand, it's next to Grand Cayman. Can't miss it. Oh, uh, well, I think it might be next to Newark, actually. <laughs> I understand, right next to your, Newark, very close. I can smell the uh, cracking towers. <laughs> yeah. All righty. All righty. Thanking all right. one more time. Let's convey all the thank yous for our great guests. Thank now. you, Jerm. Thank you, Alan. Good night, Jeff. Good night, Jerm. Good night, Alan. Good night, Tomboy. Good night, Good night. Steve. Good night, David. 
Good night, Christian. Good night. Good night for NBC News. That's right. Courage. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. 